Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting September 18, 2015, we talk about cuisine and conflict with London University lecturer Ronald Ranta. His essay in the new food-themed WPJ Fall issue is headlined Food and Nationalism, From Foie Gras to Hummus. We'll also point out other top stories in the fall issue, but first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, defending against cyber attacks is one of, if not the top national security priority for the United States. But the White House is between a rock and a hard place here. It's weighing sanctions against China for such attacks, though at the same time, the U.S. needs Beijing's cooperation on other vital matters like climate change and containing North Korea. You'll recall that China was also a member of the P5 plus one, which negotiated with Iran on its nuclear program. All this is on the agenda next week for Chinese President Xi's high stakes visit to the White House. Who's to blame for Syria's devastating refugee crisis? You might think it's that country's President Bashar al-Assad's fault, but he says, no, it's all our fault. The Syrian leader still clinging to power, says the U.S., Europe and others have not done enough to rid his country of terror groups like ISIS and the Nusra Front, which is linked to al-Qaeda. Washington continues to say, as it has for years, that Assad needs to go. But now one of his principal backers, Russia, appears to be doubling down. The Pentagon saying that Moscow is setting up a base in Syria for the express purpose of propping up its ally in Damascus. And speaking of Russia, Vladimir Putin is coming to New York later this month for the U.N. General Assembly. Moscow has dropped hints that the Kremlin boss would like to meet with President Obama. So far, the White House has not taken the bait, saying it's possible they'll both be there at the same time. The relationship between Obama and Putin can charitably best be described as strained over a variety of issues, namely Ukraine, cyber attacks and Syria. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now then. All right, you bastard. Let's go right here. The chaotic cafeteria scene from the classic film comedy Animal House. But food fights happen as well in the serious world of domestic politics and foreign relations. Over ethnic and national dishes, from elegant pâté de foie gras to whale flesh and more mundane items, including feta cheese, hummus, and falafel. Such clashes underscore the close connection between cuisine and national identity, even nationalism itself. Former chef Ronald Ranta, now a lecturer in politics at London's Kingston University, considers those connections in the new fall issue of World Policy Journal. His essay is titled Food and Nationalism, From Foie Gras to Hummus, and we talked about it recently for this podcast. Ronald Ranta, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you very much, David. Very, very glad to be here. First, tell us how long and where you worked as a chef. So I've been working in the food industry since I was a kid. 
I worked in a, one of my dad's restaurants when I was a teenager. I worked for about 20 years in London in the restaurant scene, from a lowly commie chef to being a head chef of a fish restaurant. And I stopped really working as a chef when I started making the transition toward academia. I still worked for a few years in the corporate dining. It was a catering corporate dining industry, but I stopped working just a few years ago. So I'm in Talk heart about- chef at heart. <laughs> Talk about the most common questions you got as a chef and how the general tendency to perceive uh, a food's national identity manifests itself. Well, one of the things that I've always found very frustrating is the first question, of, well, once I said I was a chef, the first question is, what kind of restaurant do you work in? What kind of food do you cook? And the implication was, or the intuition was, you cook French food, Italian food, Japanese food, American food. If I'd say I work in a modern European restaurant or a fusion restaurant, they'd say fusion. That means French and Japanese food. So there's always been this idea that if you're cooking, you're cooking national food. And this natural conflation of countries and cuisines is also promoted by food producers and marketers. Give us some examples of that. I'll give you the, 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 probably the simplest and easiest example. If you go down the aisle of any supermarket, you find that most of the produce is either labeled as belonging to a particular nation or coming from a particular country or is associated with a particular country. So, for example, in many um, supermarkets or sandwich uh, chains, you no longer see sandwiches being called s- salmon with uh, lime and coriander. It'll be Thai salmon. There won't be any more grilled chicken with uh, red peppers and basil. It'll be Italian chicken. And you can find almost everywhere. And if you think about restaurants, it's very rarely you find restaurants which are not closely associated with national food, maybe with the exception of uh, hot cuisine or, or the, the, the top end of the restaurant, uh, restaurant world. Governments at various levels also have an interest in claiming or protecting certain foods. Talk about that, how it led to the European Union's protected geographical status framework, and some examples of what's protected and how, uh, feta cheese, for example. And feta cheese is, is probably the best example, and it's one of the examples used by most people who write or, or research this thing. So Greece had a complaint that other countries in the European Union, particularly Denmark, but also Germany, were producing, also producing feta cheese and competing against Greece, which saw itself as the natural producer of feta cheese. Feta cheese had been produced in the region and in Greece for hundreds of years. But also, the method of production in Greece, based on sheep's milk and goat's milk, was very different from the method of production in Denmark, which is mostly about cow's milk. So you have countries competing for food, because food is a, big, is a big business. We're talking about millions, even billions of U.S. dollars being exchanged every year to buy, purchase, and grow these uh, commodities. So there's a number of food items which countries have therefore tried to protect, not only protecting because it's part of the national identity, but also because it protects the national industries. And you have vinegars like balsamic vinegar can all be produced in Modana in Italy, a lot of different types of cheeses. Parmesan cheese, cheddar cheese, Stilton, pastries, cakes—you name it. There is, or a number, or there are a number of food items protected under the EU's um, geographical status thing. And this issue of protection and national rights for food is also part of international negotiations of trade. Like, for example, now the TTIP negotiations for free trade between the EU and US, one of the sticking points is the issue of cheese production, where Europeans say only cheeses 
For example, only feta produced in Greece can be considered feta. Only parmesan can be considered parmesan, which would imply that U.S. manufacturers, particularly in the Midwest, which produce a lot of cheese products, will have to then label them as parmesan-like or feta-like, but will not be able to sell anymore American parmesan or American uh, buffalo mozzarella, for example. In Asia, Thailand saw cuisine as a tool in cultural diplomacy and image repair after its uh, infamous success in the world of sex tourism. How did they go about it? Well, the, the, the example of Thailand is a very interesting one. There's a term people now use when they talk about food called gastro-diplomacy, the use of food as a, as a, as a tool in cultural diplomacy that, to win the heart and mind through the stomach. <laughs> Some people associated with soft power, the ability to, to, to make yourself an attractive country, to make people like you and be appealing to others. So Thailand is the first country that really went about doing that. I think a lot because of its history and association with the sex tourism, but also because it has a long period in which it was uh, a main base for U.S. troops during the Vietnam War, and the idea of... Thai food and being taken by U.S. personnel back to the U.S. made it as an appealing food. So Thai government took upon this idea that Thai food is actually good, it's actually appealing, very interesting, and started dishing out technical and financial support for Thai restaurants abroad, supporting Thai manufacturers domestically and linking the two together, also launching Thai-themed events, food events, but also cultural events more broadly across the world. Um, building, establishing Thai cooking schools in Thailand for tourists, but also to produce more Thai chefs to send to these new established Thai restaurants abroad. So all in all, trying to link its food, agricultural, manufacturing industries with tourism and with the idea of marketing its food globally. And what were the results for Thailand at home and abroad? Well, it's sufficient to say that many countries which are now trying this approach of gastro diplomacy, and there's many recent examples like Peru or Taiwan, cite Thailand as the case study or the example to follow. So Thailand moved from a few thousand restaurants to now over 15,000 restaurants. I think that the last few, maybe now it's even 18 or 20,000 restaurants. When I was a kid, when people talked about national food, we talked about uh, Italian, French, Chinese, Japanese, no one ever mentioned Thailand. But now when we talk about food, it's, it's become one of the most recognized cuisines in the world. I think CNN had it as one of the top three cuisines nominated by uh, a poll of, of, uh, of viewers. So it's been exceptionally successful. And also the image of Thailand, people think about Thailand today, very few still equate it with sex tourism. They're now equated with great food, uh, great beaches, beautiful country. Wonderful temples. Let's look at some of the food fights you described, beginning with the controversy over uh, elegant French pâté de foie gras, goose liver. Uh, but first remind us how seriously France takes all its cuisine and how the United Nations actually agrees. Well, when you talk about cuisine, I think the first country that comes to mind is France. A lot of the terminology we use is French, where people think about great food or good food, or people want to make fun of small portions. The first association is French food and French restaurants. I think most top, fre uh, top chefs, at least in the past, used to train in a French culinary institute. A lot of the countries which used to, countries that had embassies around the world, used to provide people with French food. Just an example of how dominant French history or culture is, the Japanese foreign embassies in the past used to, used to provide 
French food to people who used to come in. The idea that countries would produce French food to show that they are sophisticated. And the first few examples of gastro diplomacy were French attempts to use food to persuade others of their cause. And see, France using its embassies, using conferences, and using its food to appeal to others. Now, this connection between gastronomy and, and, and French national identity has been recognized, as you mentioned, by the UN. The United Nations Education, Science, and Culture Organization, UNESCO, had uh, French cuisine as part of its list of world cultural heritage that needs to be protected for the benefit of humanity. And what was the controversy over pâté de foie gras in particular? So there's two points really important to say about foie gras. First thing is that it's one of the quintessential French food items. Most of the production of foie gras around the world is for the French market. And France consumes, I think, over three, three quarters of all uh, foie gras. Now, the controversy is the method of production of foie gras. So in France, to be labeled foie gras, the, let me start with saying what actually foie gras is. Foie gras is the enlarged liver, mostly of uh, non-migratory ducks, but also geese. Traditionally, it was geese, but now it's moved towards uh, non-migratory ducks because it's much easier to, to hold a large number of ducks um, and fatten them. So this issue is of causing the liver of the animal to enlarge by force-feeding it. In France, the, the term is gavage, either mechanical or manual force-feeding. And through this force-feeding, feeding them grain, they make sure the liver enlarges up to, up to eight or ten times its natural size. So the controversy basically is about the treatment of animals, with many NGOs claiming this is in inhumane treatment of animals. And the controversy is that organizations have tried to bring a ban to foie gras production, to stop the mechanical or manual force feeding of these birds. Of course, they wouldn't make eating a whole goose or duck a crime, so it's, uh, which is kind of ironic that, it's, uh, that if you ate the liver as part of the duck, it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a controversial act. But, uh, but the sort of uh, uh, Guantanamo for ducks of force-feeding ducks has become this international controversy. Uh, well, I think that also the, the images of this like mechanical force-feeding and the kind of Me mechanical uh, or, or Machiavellian, whatever the word is, the kind of factory-like process that goes behind it, I think, has stemmed many people, and it has become a very controversial topic, and many countries, as a consequence, have banned the production of foie gras. I mean, the EU itself has, had a, has looked into it through its um, scientific com uh, committee, and it found that the production of manufacture of foie gras is unethical, and they've banned it with the caveat that it, should, it, it can continue to be manufactured in the traditional place, places of uh, production, meaning if France wants to continue producing foie gras, they can. Because the, the important here, thing here is that in France, it's seen not as an issue of animal rights specifically, but also as an attack on French national identity. And early on, you mentioned the issue of whale flesh. It's very similar to other debates regarding international norms versus national norms, like whale meat, dog meat, so whale meat in the Faroe Islands, Iceland and Norway, and Japan, and dog meat in East Asia, where these countries 
perceive the consumption of these animals or the method of production as part of their national heritage and attacks against it, not as discussion based on humane treatment of animals, but as attacks on national culture and heritage. And when you talked about the EU decision on it, French law itself restricts now location and production of what is labeled foie gras. It does. But the point is that it is still massively produced in France, and French culinary institutes still view the force feeding of foie gras as essential. If it's if new methods, for example, there are now ethical methods of production of foie gras where they allow the animal to um, force feed on its own. Because birds, especially migratory birds, used to accumulate weight before flying off for the winter. The animal is allowed to overeat on itself. And it produces a liver which is normally two to three times larger than normal. But this is not recognized yet as foie gras. They see it as as duck liver or goose liver, but not proper foie gras. Uh, besides national pride, there were some significant economic factors uh, in this for the French. Some estimates say that about 100,000 people are either directly or indirectly employed or associated with work for the foie gras industry. So it's, it's a huge industry that, and has huge impact on rural economy in, in, in France. But even the French have now restricted it to places of traditional manufacture so that uh, other people can't get into the act, other people can't get involved in this controversial process. True, but this is also, it's not simply about restricting it because they want to stop it. It's also about protecting those who produce it. Ah. So there's, there's a lot of different uh, nuances to this kind of debate. So a lot of countries where there are controversial methods of production, sometimes to protect industries, have shielded, if you want, ah, from competition. Yes. Of course. Let's turn to the Middle East and disputes over whether dishes like falafel and hummus should be considered Israeli, Palestinian, Lebanese, or more broadly, Arabic. It started with a marketing gimmick by a U.S.-based food company, uh, American and Israeli-owned. Well, this so-called hummus war is one of the most interesting, insightful, but also in, I don't, I don't want to, I, I, I'm hesitant to use the word enjoyable to read stories of international relations, because at the heart of it are issues of colonization, appropriation, national identity, there's much more to it. But the bottom line is that we have a food item, which is a very mundane and trivial food item, hummus, basically a puree of chickpeas with olive oil, lemon juice, sometimes uh, garlic, salt, and, and, and cumin, which is contested by, in, in the main hummus war by two countries, Lebanon and Israel, but also by a number of international or multinational organizational corporations, and further afield. So it started with an American and Israeli-owned company called Sabra, which is now the biggest uh, hummus uh, producer in the world, trying to produce the biggest hummus plate at the time to break the Guinness records. And this spiraled out of control. Its competitor, Strauss, then also tried to break the Guinness records. The Lebanese response to that, which saw Israel basically trying to dominate the American hummus market, which is worth tens of millions, then counterattacking and 
producing the biggest uh, bowl of hummus, an event tit for tat of breaking the Guinness hummus world record. So what's interesting here is that it is partially about national identity, cuisine, and culture. The Lebanese say hummus has been part of Lebanese cuisine for, for a very, very long period of time. But it's also about economics, and that's a very interesting thing, is the dynamics between national industries, national food producers, and national identity. So it's not simply about whether hummus is Lebanese or Israeli. Of course, it is partly about that. But it's also about if it is Israeli, then uh, consumers of hummus abroad will start looking at for Israeli hummus. If a new country wants to sell hummus, especially to the U.S. market, which is the biggest hummus market in the world, a way of doing it is associating hummus not with Israel, but with another country, and particularly with Lebanon. So this kind of relationship between national industries, national identity, and food is very fascinating. And it, if you want, in a globalized world, naturally will lead to food fights. Talk about the powerful role food staples uh, have played in political instability around the world. First, the pita in Egypt. So this issue of association between food and national identity, I think, is most evident when it comes to staple foods. So in Egypt, the local bread, Aish Beladi, is seen as essential both to daily life, but also to Egyptian national identity. If you're an Egyptian, this is what you eat. And you would expect this in your daily um, diet, and if you're not able to, 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 um, to buy it, then something is wrong in the system. And therefore, many governments in Egyptian history have heavily subsidized the price of local bread. And the riots that broke out in 2007-2008 in Egypt, but not only in Egypt, were partly about the spiraling cost of staple food, and in particular, the spiraling cost of local bread. And there was a parallel with tortillas in Mexico. So what we have is that in 2007-2008, food prices across the world doubled and tripled in many places. And in several countries, what was seen as the national staple food brought about rioting or mass demonstrations. And in each country was different. In India, it was about onions. In Mexico, it was about the price of tortilla and corn. Although the Mexican example is a bit more complicated, because not simply about the price of tortilla and corn, but also the fact that they felt they've been inundated by cheap American bread and wheat. And therefore, part of the chance in the demonstrations were tortilla, yes, bread, no. In other parts of the world, for example, in West Africa, it was about the sparring cost of rice. So there's close association between the cost of staple food and national identity. From all these episodes, what lesson do you draw about food and our larger social structures, local, national, international? I think the first lesson is that food should be seen as a very useful tool to analyze international, national, and local politics. I think it has an exceptional ability as being a commodity which is traded, part of our cultural heritage, but also something we need for our daily sustenance. You cannot live without food. So it has an amazing, if you want, it's basically an analytical tool. Second, I think, is we need to recognize that in a globalized world, there will be huge clashes or, or important disputes over norms and practices. In a way, globalization is on the one hand the flattening of the world, everything being similar, but on the other hand, 
also the emphasis on particularly localities, nationalities, and regions. So on the one hand, it strengthens the international, but, uh, but also the national. So I think food brings out this kind of dichotomous relationship inherent within globalization. I'm glad that a former chef and a food industry worker has moved to study this on the academic and political plane. Ronald Randa, thank you. Thank you very much. Former chef Ronald Ranta is now a lecturer in politics at London's Kingston University. His essay in the new fall issue of World Policy Journal is titled Food and Nationalism, From Foie Gras to Hummus. Also featured in the fall 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on smaller, smarter, and more productive approaches to agriculture, on the avoidable loss and waste of food, and on lessons from a marketplace in Ghana. Plus, tune in to next week's special podcast about unexpected entrepreneurship with World Policy Institute Senior Fellow Elmira Berasli. Her new book is From the Other Side of the World, Extraordinary Entrepreneurs, Unlikely Places. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.